welcome to another episode of the Grant Street Experience. I'm your host, Grant Irvin. Uh, happy to be here with all of you today. We have a special guest uh, with us today, Dr. Ken Thompson. Ken, how are you today? Very good. It's wonderful to be here. Great to have you. And also co-host extraordinaire, Rebecca Kiernan, with uh, a new background, Rebecca. How are you? Satellite dish. Good morning. Uh, that's a real satellite dish too, right? Yeah, like circa maybe 1980s. I don't know. Circa, does, does it is it still operational? Uh, I don't think so. So it's, it's just a relic. So it's more like it's a, more of an it's an art installation. Art installation or or like a lawn ornament type of. Yeah, it's like it's like your basic flamingo. Basic flamingo. <laughs> You're gonna start a trend now. People are gonna start having. Uh, having satellite dishes in their backyard <laughs> just for decorative purposes. Oh, I thought they always did that. <laughs> I think that's what they amount to these days. Uh, well, it's good to see both of you. Um, Ken, welcome to the Grant Street Experience. Um, it's good to have you on board here. We have a bunch of bunch of questions that we uh, want to run through with you. And uh, you're, you're a, a timely man of the moment. Um, given kind of the, the times that we live in, and we wanted to, to check in with you on a, a variety of issues, um, mental health and community engagement and uh, partnering with Glaswegians too, are another big topic that we want right. to touch upon. Good. But um, maybe just to get, get us started, um, if, if you could talk a little bit about uh, kind of your background and, and kind of the work that you do, um, in the community and health space um, for, for listeners. Um, just okay. a little bit about the, Dr. Ken Thompson. Okay. So, um, so I was just reflecting on this. I'm, uh, I'm, so I'm Ken Thompson. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, and I, uh, I'm, I'm a particular kind of psychiatrist in that I uh, focus on taking care of people in community settings. So that's called a community psychiatrist. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's a part of the, uh, of the practice which is really built around community mental health and addressing the challenges that people have in day-to-day situation. Tend to focus on uh, people who are, um, you know, don't have a lot of money. So we're not talking about the, the, the classic psychoanalytic sitting on a couch, you know, with somebody who is very anxious and worried and has millions of dollars to spend on analysis. Um, this is much more out of a community mental health center or a primary health center. It's where I do my kind of clinical work. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 60 years ago, right around now, maybe in a month or so, um, I, I came to Pittsburgh um, or at least figuratively transposed myself to Pittsburgh because the Pirates beat the Yankees. And at that time, I was living a six-year-old boy living the Yankee dream. And then that was shattered. And I decided I wanted to leave that loser town. So I told my parents and the next thing I knew I was here in Pittsburgh and I grew up here in Pittsburgh um, and uh, uh, left, left for 30 years and came back um, now 30, not, I left for 20 years and then came back now 30 years ago. So I've been the majority of my life in Pittsburgh working in, uh, in these community mental health settings with the additional uh, uh, action of having been, uh, or activity of having been um, um, for uh, a while, the uh, uh, medical director of something called the Center for Mental Health Services in the U.S. Department of uh, Health and Human Services in an organization called the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. So I had for a while a long federal bureaucratic title. Um, and um, uh, But most salient to the questions I think you're going to ask me in addition to the sort of the clinical stuff, what I've also been really interested in, and, and this is because of uh, an exposure early on in my medical school days, I spent some time actually in Scotland. Um, and maybe the reasons for that will come up later, but the, the key thing that I learned there was that, um, that what makes people healthy and what makes people ill um, is not you know, what we do in medicine. Medical care is helpful to helping people be healthy sometimes, and sometimes it makes people ill. But what really makes a difference in terms of how people are and what their health is, um, is um, obviously you know how our bodies are constituted, so a little bit of genetics and in, in the way our bodies are made. 
Um, but the way our bodies is made is also very much influenced by the circumstances that we live in mm. and the resources and the, uh, and the capacities and capabilities of the environment around us to have, to make it be a, a healthy life. So I, I got very interested in the notion that, um, that uh, how we live and how we organize our society, um, the circumstances that people find themselves in, um, all those things really impact on health. And where you see that is in, in very large um, uh, uh, differences, um, particularly based on what kind of social resources and, and economic and environmental resources people have available to them. The more resources you have, the more likely you are to be healthy. The less resources you have, the less likely you are to be healthy. So you have very large health inequalities or inequities across society. And it's, it's not just a matter of there's the poor and they're all ill and then everybody else is well. It's actually, if you're extremely wealthy and you're extremely poor, if you're in the middle, you're gonna be in between those places. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a gradation. Mm. Um, that, uh, so if you looked at the city of Pittsburgh and you mapped out sort of the wealth and income of the neighborhoods, you could put together a very clear map, which would by all evidence be a kind of, uh, gradation, uh, inc inclining gradation with the healthier folks living in the most expensive, uh, uh, environments and the least healthy people living in the least, but everybody in, who was in the middle sort of being in the middle there. Um, if you, uh, uh, just to say a word there, there are some maps of, of Pittsburgh that look at premature mortality and you will not be surprised to find that, um, that the wealthy neighborhoods, people live about as long as human beings can live that we know of. And folks in poorer neighborhoods are living about 30 to 40 years average less. less. It can get that low. Yeah. It can get down from from 45, you know, 50 years old of average age of death or premature mortality to up to 90. That's this kind of span we're talking about. Um, and, um, uh, and, and then everybody else is kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. So if everybody lived as long as we possibly could, we would have a lot more people in Pittsburgh. <laughs> it, would, it would help. Uh, income would help the growth of the city effectively. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If we could, if we could diversify it around... Now, there, we can get into this a little bit later on. There is some question about if there's more inequality, does it make that gradation even steeper, mm. right? Does it make the uh, inequalities drive, drive people to be even poorer and less healthy? But at any rate, all of that is to say that the circumstances people live in make a big difference. So therefore, how a city thinks about itself, how it's organized, how its economy runs, um, what the politics of it are, all those things become fair game for thinking about how you make a city be a healthy place. So as a, as a, as a policy nerd, kind of policy matters in these cases. In terms yeah, policy of matters. matters. How, how does, um, in terms of kind of your career trajectory, I mean, how did you kind of find yourself into this space um, of, of being a community psychiatrist? I mean, obviously there's, you know, different kind of on-ramps and off-ramps, off but what really kind of led you um, to pursue kind of this work? So, um, you know, so I went to, what, what happened was I went to the UK uh, and actually to Edinburgh, Scotland in 1980 um, to do a, uh, an elective while I was in medical school. And that year is notable because it's the year right after uh, Maggie Thatcher came in and it's the year Ronald Reagan gets elected. So we're, we're looking at the institution of the sort of neoliberal um, regimes are starting up. Um, there was a report written uh, in the UK, it's called the Black Report, and it was a, uh, an analysis of mortality rates in, um, in the UK, and it showed a very distinct class gradation. All the stuff I was just talking about, mm -hmm. the first place that that was really gathered together and presented is in this Black Report. Um, so, um, so I go off to the UK, I'm expecting to learn all about the National Health Service and what I learned is that the National Health Service is important and it's a good thing. And it's nice that people have access to good medical care, which, which they do in the UK. I mean, it's, they have really pretty good access to primary health services. Um, but despite having really good access to primary health services, um, they still had the gradation 
you know, mm. the, the poor folks down at the bottom, very rich at the top, and everybody kind of lining up in between, um, despite the fact that they all had access to really good medical care. In the United States, we were still thinking, um, and we've shifted, that if you got everybody good primary care or, or good insurance, that everybody's health would improve. Um, and that's a little bit true. I mean, that's, I don't want to dismiss it, but it isn't actually what's making people really sick. What's yeah. making people really sick is the situations that they're living in. And the, um, and the equity issues are really pretty profound in that, both on kind of the, the intersection of race and class um, and gender plays a role in this too as well. So the, um, so I got into this, I go to the UK, I come back and I think, all right, I can't just think about how I'm gonna take care of people who see me in my office. I have to think about a sort of public health approach. And as I think about this public health approach, it becomes clearer and clearer that that all of the tools like housing, transportation, what kind of job you have, what kind of income you have is dependent on, you know, our taxation policies and our, our policies about how we distribute and run the welfare state. All those things become really kind of part of the process. For me, I come to Pittsburgh. I, so I came back, I did the rest of my training in New York and in New Haven, um, and I got recruited to Pittsburgh in the 1990. And I came to Pittsburgh and I, um, um, and I just started to work with folks, um, particularly in the county, um, obviously through the Office of Mental Health, um, and, uh, and, and started to think about some of these issues with folks. Uh, and it's just sort of expanded over time and eventually got to the federal government where I was part of, a, um, uh, in the early gentle days of George W. Bush, he launched conservative, conservative, uh, what a compassionate, compassionate conservatism. Right. So one of the things they did was a, um, an initiative to look at uh, mental health. Service. They had a commission on mental health in the United States. And one of the things that came out of that was that the sort of circumstances that people live in drive mental health um, as they do other aspects of health. And, uh, and I, in that federal role, I was involved in starting to think about how, how do the, what we now call social determinants of health, mm -hmm. how do they impact on people's health and mental health? Uh, and I've just kind of followed that process all along. Um, a particular wedge, and it brings in the Glaswegians, um, is that uh, in, in 2000, the new labor came to power in the UK. And because of my previous experience, I'd been following what was going on in the UK with the National Health Service and how they were thinking about health um, and health services. Um, and New Labor came in and they launched an initiative called the Health Action Zone. Mm. The Health Action Zone was to take a neighborhood or a community that had very poor health indices uh, and to go into that community and try to start doing the things that would mobilize and engage a population around their health. Um, and that quickly led them into um, uh, the whole issue of how do you develop a place to be a healthy place? Um, so I went there in 2000 to find out about the health action zones were relatively new then. I went to find out about them. I actually ended up spending two months in Glasgow studying the health action zones. Hmm. Um, and, um, and I realized when I was there that not only was it an interesting idea, the health action zones, I also realized that there was something about um, deindustrialized cities or post-industrial cities that, that linked us together in a way. You know, I'd had experience in New York and I've been in Boston, but, um, but there's something about a place that was built around making things and, and heavy industry and, you know, the kind of place that Pittsburgh was, the kind of place I grew up in. Yeah. I went to Glasgow, and it's, it's the same damn place. I mean, they talk weird, right? Well, um, we do, too. <laughs> we, do, we do, too. As listeners um, of this podcast will know from accents and uh, my, my technical jargon. Yeah. You know, so, um, so I go off to, uh, to Glasgow, and, I, and I'm talking to, um, to folks there, and I realize that that, that, that we are a kind of a particular kind of city. And there are other cities, I, I got to go to a bunch of other post-industrial cities in the UK and came back to the United States. And, you know, obviously you've got Cleveland and Akron and Buffalo and, um, you know, Cincinnati and, um, uh, and, and Detroit. We've, we've got a world of cities that we 
in those days, we barely talked about them. They'd kind of all been flushed down the toilet. Nobody really, you know, yeah. the mistake on the lake, all this stuff. And, um, you know, Baltimore as well. So, um, so I got really interested in this idea that it's, it's not just, um, it's not just about health equity and it's not just about, um, for, for me, um, it's also about what the future of these cities and these regions are. And, um, and my awareness of that has just continued to grow. I, I put together a couple of conferences in the early 2000s um, on post-industrial cities and health and, mm -hmm. and well-being and how to achieve equity um, and brought a bunch of cities together to do that back then. And that kind of launched this. You know, that's interesting. And, and there, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in here. Um, one of the things that it, if you could talk to us about is the idea of um, in each of those places, um, tectonic shifts, right? Like you, you mentioned kind of, you know, the Thatcher Reagan kind of shift, right? You know, so that's a huge political shift, the deindustrialization of these places um, and what that means in terms of um, loss of agency or the, the loss of a job that leads to loss of agency. What happens to people, I guess, from a clinical sense um, and in terms of uh, what people are deal with in terms of those systemic shocks, if uh, right. um, like what, what happens from a mental standpoint, I guess. Right. Well, there's another element in this picture that I have to bring in on the psychiatric side. And it's, it's interesting that we, we kind of knew it. We just didn't talk about it in the same way. Um, starting in the late seventies, mid to late seventies, we start having this concept of what's called post-traumatic stress, stress mm. introduced into American culture. And it's brought in specifically around the Vietnam vets. Um, right. um, what's happened over the last 40 years now is an explosion in understanding the impact of trauma and what trauma is and, and the different kinds of trauma. Um, so, you know, originally trauma was really limited to like combat. Right. Yeah. And watching really horrific and being involved in really horrific things. We've realized now that trauma is um, um, much more ubiquitous and much more, um, uh, you know, it's not just limited to combat situations or motor vehicle accidents. It's actually related, unfortunately, to huge amounts of uh, uh, trauma that children experience, mm -hmm. um, particularly, you know, abuse and neglect, but um, a whole range of kind of adverse effects or uh, events that happen to kids. Um, so we, we began to think a little bit more about how, how these kinds of um, uh, disruptions impact on people. And uh, one of the things we've learned, and it was, was known at the time that unemployment and you know, being kind of disengaged from day-to-day -day activities that, that bring you both money and purpose and a reason to you know, get up in the morning, that, these were, that it was really bad for people to experience that. Um, but we've, we've had over the time, and I, I think it became clearer, you know, as time went forward. It's, I think Pittsburgh's um, experience of deindustrialization, we, we were a little bit ahead of the curve at the, at the national level. I think steel really bit it here harder first. Um, so we didn't really grasp this. And I, I'm, I, I don't know if any of you guys have run across it. I, I find almost no studies of what happened to the people when steel crashed. I mean, there's just, there's one study that came out of uh, Pitt, the Department of Social Work. Um, but, you know, there should have been reams and reams of mm -hmm. effort to understand what happened to people. Nothing, very little. So, but to, but to come back to your question, so we had to understand that trauma was impacting on people. And what we've come, come to understand is that there are various levels of trauma. There's the trauma at the individual level. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of, you know, you have a dissolution of your life plans, you lose your agency, you know, your capacity to sort of direct things, You're, you are now less able to, uh, uh, to, to decide what's going to happen in your life, you, um, you lose a significant amount of self-esteem, um, there's a significant amount of shame um, mm -hmm. um, in this. Uh, a lot of this is, um, you know, particularly for the steel industry, um, you know, impacted men in particular. Um, we weren't as diversified and we're still not as diversified in the, obviously in, the, in, in what kind of work people do uh, by gender uh, and also by race. 
Um, but there were lots of men who were impacted by this and men do very badly when they have something bad happen to them. They don't usually talk well on it. It's a genderized sort of overstatement, but it's fair to say. So drinking um, and, and other kinds of things that get people into trouble mm-hmm. um, are, are, are likely outcomes. Um, so, so on the individual level, you know, some people really struggle. Other people are more resilient. They have things that they turn to. They've got some, you know, kind of capability or capacity to uh, uh, find an opportunity that they can that they can work with, or they're they're more capable of, um, you know, stepping back and, you know, moving from uh, a union job to uh, to retail, right? And um, th- those kinds of things. There's some people who can do that. So that it's a variable thing. It's it's um, it's not entirely clear what it is that drives. Uh, who's resilient and who's not. But, um, but at the individual level, that's how it plays out. At the collective level, at the collective level, which is another level altogether, what you find is a tendency for people in communities to really just hunker down. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they get, they, for periods of time, they really kind of pine for a return of what's been lost don't can't really imagine that they have to really rethink what they're doing. It takes a long time for that to sort of sink through and not to, not to feel like you could just bring steel back tomorrow. Um, and we saw that in Pittsburgh, you know, people waited, it's going to come back. Yeah. So, so that collective trauma is really, um, is, 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 is a kind of disabling sort of nostalgia and, um, and an inability to move forward easily. Wow. And you can see that really throughout the region, right? Um, I mean, so that uh, I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you know, different policy decisions made in, in, throughout Pittsburgh in the late 1980s, early 1990s, like still trying to kind of bring the steel industry back, right? Even though that the tectonic plates of the economy had shifted in the labor market. Um, and you still see that. In, in parts of the region, right? Where that, that collective trauma influences people's politics and their individual decision-making. Yep. Um, and so is it the case that there's almost like a, a, a regional uh, psychosis that happens? It's not just isolated to the individual? Yeah, I think, I think actually it, 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 you know, so individuals exist in a web, you know, right. I, I can't speak English by myself to myself alone. I would never learn English by myself to myself alone. So we're in this web of ideas of how we think and understand things, how we express stuff. Um, and, and I think that the web gets infected by the trauma. You know, mm. there's this, there's this sort of feeling that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the emotions behind it are, I, I really don't want to have to deal with this. I would much rather be doing what I was doing before the trauma happened, but the trauma happened. And now I'm constantly forced to think about the pain that was engaged in that. Mm-hmm. So I want to be, I'm averse to that. I don't want to deal with it. Um, I kind of just want to go through my day and limit my losses. Uh, and I think that that's sort of what people tend to do. And it, it makes you um, in general, it makes people as a collective, um, really pretty wary about where they're going to go and what they're going to do into the future. Um, mm. And, uh, and it, 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 it takes a while. It's, a, it's, it's also a kind of grief, um, you know, so, it's, so it, it does have a trajectory of, of resolution over time. Mm. Um, but, but in that process, you know, in Pittsburgh, for example, huge numbers of people had to leave, right? Yeah, is, yeah. People, we had a huge diaspora, um, we have, um, and in that, a lot of young people took off. So, so, so some of the people who are more willing to kind of do things innovatively, you know, it took us a long time to become a magnet for any kind of youth. Um, and, uh, uh, so that innovation disappears. Um, I, I'd be interested, I mean, like, so I, I was born and raised in the Pittsburgh area, but both of you have come, uh, in from other places. I mean, Rebecca, I mean, you're, you're, you've been here for over 10 years now, Ken, you know, over, over 30, but like, do you guys, what were some of your initial reactions in terms of like the, the regional psychiatric condition, I guess, like moving to Pittsburgh? I'll let you go, Rebecca. 
I don't know. I mean, um, there, I, I, you definitely notice the nostalgia. I mean, even just, and I've mentioned this before, but just listening to the radio, it's a lot of eighties music, a lot of seventies music. Um, there's a lot of seventies and eighties cars. I feel like there's a lot of, um, yeah, just a, a, a longing for that era in mm. Pittsburgh. Um, but I mean, just in the 10 years that I've been here, there's been a lot of, um, a, a lot of turnover. So I feel like some of that is starting to get muted and, and lost. And, and kind of wane. And there, is there, is there good and bad to that? Like the loss of that tether? Well, I can speak to that. I mean, you know, I grew up, so I'm, I'm here through my, un, until I graduated from high school and then I actually, my family all lives here and I would come back um you know during the summers in college and so i've I've kind of followed along um the um the nature of the city and the feeling of the city has really changed and 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 one aspect of it that i think is it's it's hard to really think about it at the moment back then to be back in that moment exactly but from this perspective the city was and there were still lots of problems, right? Race, gender issues, all kinds of stuff that we would think of as real problems today were very, very, very prevalent back then. Mm -hmm. But despite that, there was also this sense that you were, you were a Pittsburgher and it was that the city kind of, the people had some solidarity with each other at some Mm -hmm. level. I, I don't, I don't really know how to put my finger on that. I, I'm not sure that isn't just a fantasy of mine now, many years later, looking back on it. It also had this kind of gritty authenticity. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't glitzy or showy. I mean, you, if you want to be, in fact, a lot of young people that I was around, we all wanted to get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know, why would you ever be in the city of Pittsburgh when you could go to Boston, you could go to New York, right. you go to San Francisco, you go to Colorado get the hell out of Pittsburgh. Nobody stays in Pittsburgh. Now, and I don't, I don't know if people in New York are sitting there saying, I'm getting the hell out of New York. Who stays in New York? I'm going to Pittsburgh. Um, that's what I said. Um, that's what Rebecca <laughs> said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but, I, but I think that this, um, there is this kind of uh, sense of the people, and, the, the, and this was where this post-industrial, deindustrialized city process came to mind, was that as I was watching this destruction of of uh, communities and and the city um, with the loss of industry. One of the things I thought we still had, and I I still believe this, and you can see it when when the Steelers are playing, right? That's a, really where it most is evident, right? That people really feel like they're they are Pittsburghers and they have some relationship to this region and to the yeah. way we are. Um, um, that that feeling, I think, is is also really evident if you go to any of these other post-industrial cities. Glasgow, for example, the people there are really into who they are and what their their past was. So they have this nostalgia that they're carrying forward in a sort of social solidarity way that I think is a valuable asset to the city and to the region. And it's been sort of the conceit of the this project to bring uh, Glasgow um, together with us as a, as a partner, sister city, that, that if we can sort of figure out how to tap into that kind of social solidarity in the way that we think about how we organize and make the places that we live in, that we could actually do something for this city and for the people of this city that, um, that a lot of other places would have an even harder time doing. So, so- okay, go ahead, Rebecca, I'm sorry. I'm just curious, um, because so like you still have, um, you know, clinics that you run. So you work with people one on one. How do you keep the the community psychology in mind while treating at the individual level? Mm. Oh, that's a very good question. Um, You know, they are they are distinctly different levels, you know, uh, but but I I sort of think about it in this way. They're 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 both they are also fractals of each other, right? There's a little bit there are elements of each of them in the other. Uh, so you run into people who have the the feeling and the belief, and this has been particularly true. There's this notion that's out there, and and this has been kind of a uh, um, you know before COVID was really kind of consuming me. Um, this notion of what what's called the 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 deaths of despair. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at um, if you look around the United States um, and uh, and and track where where people are are um, having premature mortality, i.e., they're dying younger than everybody else, or the average age of death is is younger for this for particular groups. What we find is that in the last five years or so, um, particularly among um, uh, white, less educated, so more manual working class kind of uh, white population, you have in the history, for the first time in the history of the United States, you actually have the average age of death decreasing. Right, so that they instead of living longer, they are dying earlier, and that's a bend in the curve. Right, everybody else, and this includes the racial, racial and ethnic minorities, right, even working class racial and ethnic minorities, at least until very recently, everybody else's um, uh, average age of death has been increasing. Um, now, for racial, for blacks in particular, to some degree, for Latinos. Um, the, uh, the average age of death was still uh, less than it was for white folks. So the health is not better. I'm not gonna say that uh, black folks are having better health than what poor white folks. But what's happened is, is that poor white folks health has bent down and is now in trajectory to meet uh, the, what's happened with uh, African-American health. And at some point it will meet it. And depending on what happens with African-Americans, um, uh, and and what's happening with uh, health in uh, in in working class communities, black or white, um, it's possible that black folks may actually end up being healthier and live longer than poor white folks. Mm. So there's so that that's a challenge that's going on right now. It's attributed largely to um, opiates, to the opiate addiction and the ODs, and to but but it's also got elements of. Um, uh, because of increased rate of suicide and also people dying from alcoholism. Um, so those three things sort of put together became this concept of the diseases of despair. And the notion is, is that in communities where particularly the economic tectonic shift has been significant enough to sort of dissolve what an idea about what the future looks like mm-hmm. and what the path is to go forward in a way that is con- consonant with how you understand and think the world should be, um, that those communities have really just taken a, a very hard hit. Uh, and, um, you know, a number of people who've died from opiates uh, and, and suicide and alcohol over the last 10 years is, you know, mounting up to probably getting close to a million people. So it's, it's a, it's a, and those people are all dying young, you know, they're dying in their thirties and forties, some in their twenties. Um, and, um, and that's, uh, that's been a very significant loss. And I think that that's, that's an individual example of a collective force, wow. right, of a collective trauma. And you, you see that prevalent, it's fascinating, like that, you see that prevalent in communities throughout Appalachia, right? Like, uh, yeah. Like Pittsburgh is kind of the, the tip of the spear, maybe, if you look at it from a geographic context, but it really permeates down through the Ohio Valley, Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, et cetera. I, you know, I've been, uh, so this is, and, and Grant, I'm, I'm going to credit you for helping me to understand this. Um, so I used to think about this was all about just deindustrialization as a, you know, like you have plants and you don't have the plants anymore because you've either automated or you've moved the plants overseas, right? Because there's a market now overseas and we, you don't have to have the market, all, all the production here, you can have it elsewhere. That's how I used to think about. It. I think, though, it's it's actually an even larger trend, and it's um, uh, and it's related. In, and this was sort of, you know, as we were working on one of the partnership ideas with Glasgow and and trying to get a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, looking at how we could use some of the things that they've learned around um, addressing um, uh, fuel poverty or or uh, or uh, you know the burden of of uh, heating your house, um, the economic burden. That, um, that, that both Pittsburgh and Glasgow and other deindustrialized places went through a sort of inadvertent um, carbon reduction scheme, 
right? Um, yeah. we, were, we were all places that were built on extraction. So industrial places tend to be places that were built on extraction. And as we move away from the kind of extraction that we've been doing for the last 150 years, 200 years, yeah. those places are going down the tubes. They're, they're having the same problem. So it's, it's essentially the extraction zones that are having the hardest time right now um, exactly. as, we, as we move to try to figure out how to get energy in a different way. It, it, it's interesting because these, and you know, just on the opiates and I, there's a bunch, a couple of things I want to unpack here too. And um, this is a trend that just didn't start yesterday, right? No. This is a, a longitudinal impact. Um, two things, maybe Rebecca, if you could touch upon for folks like the issue of, of energy burden or, or as our Scottish friends call it fuel poverty and what the impact is that is because it's this confluence of these issues coming together, um, both from like the physical aspects of how we heat and warm our homes, but also can, you know, the mental impacts, like the stressors that are on people's lives in terms of managing, managing their everyday health and wellness and the stress that they feel. But Rebecca, maybe if you can start with what you've seen in some of our work with, with energy burden. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we had been uh, looking at housing stock conditions um, and how to increase energy efficiency uh, over the past few years for um, a number of grant applications that we were looking to apply for, um, which led us into this uh, the study of, of what's called as, uh, what's known as energy burden. So that's the proportion of your income that you spend on your utility bills, um, in this case, just energy, but there's also analyses that um, are done, but not as well for water. Um, but uh, so in Pittsburgh, we actually have the sixth worst, uh, we are the sixth worst, sixth worst city in the U.S. for energy burden. Um, that's and the second worst for a black population. Um, so a lot of our residents are paying upwards of 16% of their uh, monthly income on their energy bills. So that's just heating and, and cooling. Um, so uh, when we started looking into, you know, our housing stock conditions, we have a, a very aging housing stock. Um, so 50% of our housing stock was built before 1940. Um, a lot of that hasn't seen many upgrades because we lost a lot of our population and now we're starting to see a little bit of an uptick. Um, a lot of those houses have sat, sat vacant for a long time. So there's been, uh, so there's been no upgrades. Um, we also lack a significant amount of um, insulation. Uh, so most of our households are very leaky. Um, but we also pay some of the lowest rates in the country um, because we're so close to that extraction point. Um, especially for natural gas. Um, so what's really interesting ab about this when you start to dig into it is that um, we pay some of the lowest rates in the country, but we have some of the highest energy bills in the country. And that's mm. because our, house our housing stock is so leaky. Um, so it's, volumetric. it's the volume that we're consuming. Yep. So we're consuming significantly more energy. Um, but what's also tangential to that issue of, of overpaying um, and having you know the cost burden is also the health burden of um, producing and using more energy. Um, so we're, we are close to the generation point. So um, because of our topography, uh, we get a lot of those, those poor air quality emissions that come from um, coal-fired power plants and natural, natural gas-fired power plants um, within the region. And we also see those health impacts, those negative health impacts. Um, there was a study that was done recently that said um, it, in Pittsburgh, we were the, the highest um, out of any of the cities that were studied, um, a 15% energy use reduction citywide would result in a $200 per person savings in healthcare costs annually, which ends up being, I think it was 60, uh, 62 or $63 million a year. Um, so if we were able to, you know, take those health savings and pump it back into um, energy retrofits, um, you know, renewable energy or, or household, saving household energy consumption, we could really um, imp improve, you know, not, not just our, our wallets, but also our health. Yeah, this is, uh, this directly ties into the, you know, the, the critical importance of a just transition. Because the, the flip mm -hmm. side of that study 
which I don't know if anybody talked about it or thought about it is, and, and, and I honestly don't know what the, um, what the impact would be. So I'm, I'm just talking theoretically. The flip side of that study would be to say, okay, well, we'll, we won't have any of that extraction. You know, we won't do that stuff here. We'll have it done someplace else. And the energy will come here without all the, uh, the health costs. Um, but we also won't have any jobs, right? Because they're not going to be employed doing that work. And, and, the, and the challenge there, and this is where I think we, we, the, there's a real struggle, is it is really important that you live in a clean environment. It's, it's essential, right? You've got to have it. You also have to have a job. Yeah. If you don't have a job, you're in a dirty environment by definition. And if you have a job and you're living in a dirty environment, you're in a dirty environment, even though you have a job. So, so the, uh, the challenge, I think, is to try to figure out how, as we move out of this extraction industry that has, you know, it, it's got two problems that we have to face, I think, in, in my thinking. One is it does employ people, right? It absolutely did employ people. Um, but on top of that, it made a gazillion dollars for some people. And they are very loath to give it up. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the trick of trying to figure out what you're going to do to get the people who have the jobs. I mean, there's, we're seeing this played out on television advertisements right now for the elections. How you're going to make sure that folks feel like there's a secure future mm-hmm. for jobs for them. Um, uh, and and I'll, I'll say one other thing about this. This is particularly true for Western Pennsylvania. Um, I talked a little bit about this sort of notion about being a Pittsburgher. I, I think that that's, that actually extends to sort of Western Pennsylvania. And I've, I've heard, I don't know if this is still the truth, but there were two, two areas of the country that had the least amount of, of, um, of, uh, of people voluntarily moving out of them. Um, one of them is Vermont and the other was Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a, uh, there's a, a sense and, you know, I'm, and I'm a boomerang, right? I, I tried to leave and I, I'm never going to leave again because it just means I'm going to have to come back. <laughs> I, I, it's not, it's not possible to leave once you're here. Um, but I, but I think that there is this challenge of, um, really trying to figure out how we're going to make sure that people can be economically prosperous in the face of moving out of the extraction industries, which were for a while incredibly economically prosperous for some people and at least allowed other people to, you know, have jobs that they, that they unfortunately soiled their uh, environment with. Yeah. A couple of things, uh, just to be conscious of our time here, I want to hit on a couple of things that you guys have brought up and, uh, we've danced around it a little bit, but and can you talk about the, the Pittsburgh-Glasgow partnership um, and, and kind of how it originated? And also, like one of the things just to, on this just transition, what's interesting about that is that both places, as well as other kind of post-industrial cities, have reinvented themselves. Um, and this idea in Pittsburgh, whether it was steel or Glasgow and uh, in the shipbuilding industry, found a new, the cities found a new life and the people found a new life in many cases. Um, so maybe a little bit about the partnership and what led to that, some of those points of new discovery, I guess. Great, okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be really quick. The, um, so anyhow, we had these conferences in the 2000s and I made a lot of connections with folks in Glasgow at that point, particularly a guy named Duncan Booker, who was head of um, the health action zones in Glasgow, or the health action areas in Glasgow. Um, and the Healthy City Program. And I maintained contact with them over time. Uh, five years ago, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, which is a big health foundation, um, decided that it, it was possible that there were things that we might learn from other parts of the world that would be useful for mm-hmm. the United States. Before that, we'd never done anything. They'd never done anything to look at how other countries deal with their health challenges. They put out this grant. We applied for it. And I applied for it um, working with something called the Glasgow Center for Population Health and, um, and what was called, uh, what's called uh, Resilient Glasgow. And of course, that led me directly to Resilient Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and by that time, actually, uh, Grant had run into Duncan and other folks from Glasgow through the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. 
So this was sort of like, you know, serendipity. It's sort of like, it's sort of like Grant on Grant Street, but just how could it be anything else? <laughs> um, and, and we put together a proposal to look at resilience as a tool for health equity in a, in a city that was um, post-industrial and it was really trying to redesign itself um, to be a resilient city. And how could, that, how could that connect up with this idea of health equity? And the, the key thing that I, I want to share about that and what's gotten us into this relationship with Glasgow is that they have a, they have a very nice phrase, which is their city slogan. And that is, uh, people make Glasgow. That's it. And then you can add anything you want to it, like beautiful, energy efficient, you know, equitable, anything you want. But the concept was that what made the city resilient, what made the city resilient wasn't the infrastructure per se, although that's really important, right? What makes a city resilient is the nature and the capacities and the capability of the people's to work to do things together for themselves and for each other. And, um, and so that, that has fueled this notion that maybe there are things that we could exchange and learn from each other as we make our cities. And as we think about um, lining up the values that we have, which are to be inclusive, um, to, uh, to bring prosperity to everyone, to, uh, to really make, make this city be the kind of shining city that Glasgow also sees itself as being. And I, and I think there's another element to this in the notion of the post-industrial that I'll just say, and that is, you know, once you've really hit, once you've hit the pits and you're in the worst possible place you can imagine, that you can imagine a city that comes out of that, there's really, it's, it's a bit grandiose, of course, but on the other hand, you know, both these cities were industrial titans. I mean, they punched way above their weight um, in terms of the number of people here and what they produced and what they did in this in this uh, in the in the, ec in the economy that we live in and the nations we live in. So I I don't think it's really inappropriate for Pittsburgh to dream big. We've yeah. we've saved ourselves from catastrophe and we'd already built ourselves up to be something really pretty extraordinary before. So why not why not do it? But this time do it not so much to make things, um, although that's important, but maybe we could do it this time for the people. It's mm, interesting. You know, you know, the, the times that we're in, and I, I, I'd be remiss if I don't ask about this, is that um, we're in the midst of a, a global pandemic, um, which has uh, wrought all kinds of havoc on us. And, and both uh, you guys and Rebecca have been part of a, a small group that's been thinking about kind of COVID re and, and recovery from the pandemic. Um, you know, and I'd be interesting to hear from both of you in terms of some of your reflections about, um, you know, Rebecca, kind of like what, what, can, what can we see in the future as what is an opportunity coming out of this, this uh, you know, acute uh, challenge or acute shock? And, and Ken, um, I'd be interested in kind of your reflection, both from kind of the, the mental health challenges that people have experienced in, in dealing with this, uh, the pandemic, um, but also like what, what, what can we glean from it? Like what are some of the lessons that we can learn, you know, from, from COVID um, and, and how do we apply those lessons to create a, a better city, a better place? Maybe Rebecca, if you want to kickstart us. Opportunities out of a pandemic. Um, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think at least, uh, you know, in, in our line of work, it, it seems like um, a, a lot of what we had been doing can be done remotely, um, which I, I think is, is also a challenge. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, we were on a trajectory to be um, mechanizing and automating um, before uh, COVID happened. So, I mean, I feel like this has been a little bit of like a Band-Aid being ripped off to see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the one of the good opportunities that comes out of it, I guess, is that um, everybody's going through it together. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, while different aspects of the pandemic have, have impacted people totally differently and on different sides of the spectrum, depending on, you know, where you work or where you live or whatever, um, at least, you know, we're all... Uh, dealing with the same same root cause, I guess. Um, 
that and solidarity that Ken talked about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A, a, a bizarre solidarity and being locked ap apart from one another. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And then, I mean, you know, when, when things do go back, I guess it'll be, um, you'll appreciate it more. So, I don't know. That's not a great answer. That's a, it's, <laughs> no, I think it's good. I mean, the solidarity component is real. I mean, the idea that there's this shared experience um, has really been something mm -hmm. I think that's been absent um, because of the fractured media environment, because of political polarization. Um, you know, I think we've seen some of that separation, but you hearken back to kind of, uh, you know, kind of May, June, and, you know, we were all in it together. Um, and like, yeah. how do you kind of call on that? I mean, that's a really good point. Um, Ken, how about you? I mean, uh, you know, one of the things too that we, we've learned through our, our, our Glasgow partnership, I think has been that the challenges of isolation and loneliness um, and how they just can, you know, uh, wreak havoc on, uh, on the, the human condition and human experience. I mean, we're, we're social creatures, right? And we, we feed on kind of uh, our relationships with one another. I mean, do you have uh, just some, some, not just clinical thoughts, but, you know, kind of things that you're seeing that, that you'd like to reflect on? So, yeah, I do. I, I do. And it's, um, you know, we, when, when we were talking about the, the idea of how we might build back better and what, what, what we could do, the kind of slogan that uh, 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 Vice President Biden's running on, um, I, I was in a slightly different place than I am at right now. And, I, and I'm, and I'm going to say this. I, I think the solidarity is really a, the critical thing, you know, how we can be separate from each other enough to be survive the COVID, but in that process, bring ourselves together enough in whatever mechanisms we can digitally or however else we can do it, meeting outside, whatever we do to stay in touch and connected with each other. That's, that's going to be really important. But I think, unfortunately, and I, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it um, because it's very frustrating to deal with the, the, the wish, the, 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 the desire for things to be better faster. So today on the news, you know, there's, oh, we might have, it's a possibility, it's very outlandish, it could never happen, but maybe it will, that we're gonna have to distribute the vaccine in October, right? And, 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 and the reason I mention that is that that makes people think that this is gonna end soon. We've had in this process this idea that this was going to end soon, and I think that's inhibited us from actually doing some of the really hard work that I think we might need to do right now. So, that, so the answer to your question about what we're going to gain out of this, I think it's going to be this. I think we're going to learn that we really have to learn how to persevere. Mm. We have to give up wishful thinking, and we have to just face the realities the likelihood of a bad reality, we have to face it and we have to plan to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out good, that's fine. But if we put all our money on it turning out good and we don't plan for the, to persevere and to do what we're gonna have to do, we're gonna be in trouble. So, so the bottom line is I think right now, and, I, and I'm hopeful you know, at the city level to, to help think about this, I would, not, I would not plan for anything but the worst. And the worst would be that we're not out of this for another year. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. And, and, and we're going to have people, and I'm starting to see them. People are getting isolated. They're getting stir crazy. They need some way to maintain their morale and their purpose and the idea that there's going to be some possibility out of the future mm -hmm. um, to keep going. And that, that is something we got to learn how to do now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of uh, building the metal, right? Like the, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is really kind of an important point. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that we do here to kind of wrap up the Grant Street experience is uh, we have a little little kind of end, end of show wrap up, which is uh, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Um, so we're always kind of interested to, to learn from our guests. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you're consuming um, one, because I, then I just jot down a list that uh, I try to keep up with. Uh, so I'm looking for personally good ideas. So it's a little selfish question. Um, but we try to glean from it. 
um, in terms of kind of what, what, what folks are out there consuming in terms of uh, entertainment or education. Um, so we'll start, with, uh, we'll start with you, Ken, as our guest. Uh, so if you have any good ideas, we'd love to hear it. So I'm, I'm actually reading a book right now that I'm, I'm, I'm finding really interesting, sort of reliving my, my life um, in terms of the politics of, of all the stuff we've just been talking about by a guy named Kurt Anderson called Evil Geniuses. And it's a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm heavy onto nonfiction, un unfortunately. Um, but this is, so this is a sort of history of the last 40 years and how we've ended up in the place that we've ended up. Um, but but kind of going through um, the chain of events um, that that's gotten us here. And it's been really, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting read. Um, I got two other things I'm going to share um, and they're more directly related to being in Pittsburgh. The first is um, if you don't have a bicycle, you're sore out of luck because I don't think there are any bikes available anywhere to buy because everybody's got their bikes and they're not producing them fast enough. But um, I did pedal Pittsburgh last weekend. Nice. Um, I did the, uh, the 40 mile 3000 foot. <laughs> Some serious climbing. That's some serious. There was a hill that I it's I don't even know where the hell it is over in Bel Air, it, Bellevue. That um, I, I don't know how the hell I, I I had to stop halfway up, but I still pedaled all the way up. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. And I and it, but but being out on a bike in this region is phenomenal. I think it's world class. I mean, you got to like hills, and you got to be willing to deal with it. But once you do, you get to go downhill. That's yeah. fabulous. You are, That's you great. Earn the down, I always tell people you earn the downhill. The, the, it is. It's it, going around, riding around the city has been one of the best experiences I've ever had doing anything. It's just fabulous. And um, and then the last thing is I'm just going to mention it's a plug, um, and I, I don't know when she's going to do it again, but um, I watched um, uh, Quantum Theater uh, Constellation. There's a play that they just did, but they did it, you know, on. Um, uh, on video, you know, uh, broadcasting it. And it was, it was just, it was great. It was so good. And I, um, so that's it. That's awesome. That's terrific stuff. Rebecca, how about you? Um, not a whole lot. I've been trying to lighten up lately. So uh, I've been working on some species identification with uh, my Audubon field guide. But that's about it. What about you, Greg? Yeah. Oh man, that's pretty good. Um, I have yeah the Audubon Field Guide. That is that's good for this time of year. Yeah, there's one for the Midwest. Uh, wait, Mid Atlantic region. Okay. So it's kind of a uh, um, common things that you would find in the region, which is which is pretty nice. And so <laughs> you're you're on hikes, or you're picking up specimens, or just on hikes. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. What about, what about you? Uh, what about me? Um, so I, 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 this just goes to show you that how I, I use this, this little segment. Um, I uh, picked up a copy of Grit by Angela Duckworth, which uh, 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 former guest Rick Williams had recommended. Nice. Um, so I, I picked that up and it's, it is a really, um, I'm early into it, but it is a really good read. Um, and, and just, you know, particularly I think for this time, like Rick said, um, it, it just gives you a sense exactly what you're just talking about, Ken. Um, the idea of, uh, perseverance and persistence, um, and what is, you know, internally required, um, to succeed, you know, so there's plenty of people out there that have talent, but if you don't have, um, and plenty of people that have ability, but if you don't have kind of the, the mental capacity, it's, it's difficult to actually kind of succeed in things, whatever that venture is. Um, I, that's only after two chapters. So I'll, I, I can let you know more when I, when I, when I finish it. And then uh, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but my brother recommended um, the man in a high, the man in the high castle. Oh no, that's scary. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, I'm only about four or five episodes in. Have you seen it? No. Yeah. Uh, it's... Part of it. I, I stopped after a while. <laughs> like you couldn't, you couldn't take anymore or like. Just, just like, 
It was like living my life. I don't want to live my life. All right. I, I, yeah, like I'm, I'm about five episodes in and like every time, like, do I want to watch another one? Like, I don't, I don't know quite what I'm getting myself into. I, I got one other video that is really, uh, really, really good. Um, it's called uh, Baghdad Berlin. Baghdad Berlin. Okay. Baghdad Berlin. And it's a, uh, it's a series out of uh, Germany. Listen to it in German. Don't listen to the dub version. Um, and just read the, you know, read the subtitles. And, um, but it's a history. It's a, it's a story um, set in uh, the very last uh, years of the Weimar Republic. Oh. And it, it's, it's, it's really, really good. That's interesting stuff. Excellent. If you're, if you're going to go, if you want to go into that fascist, you know, imagine that the fascist may be coming. That's where you can go. That's, I, 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 yeah, I don't want to dig too deep into it. Like, it, it, I don't think it's good for my mental health. <laughs> um, well, hey, we really appreciate this, Rebecca, as always. Um, Ken, it's great to spend some time with you, and we'll be checking in with you soon. Um, thank you for giving us a bit of your time and sharing all this uh, great knowledge. Um, true asset to the city. We appreciate it. Um, and we'll, Thank you. Thank we'll, you for the opportunity. Yes. Um, so thank you all for listening in to the Grant Street Experience. Uh, thanks to Dr. Ken Thompson, Rebecca Kiernan, uh, our Pittsburgh cable team, Bill, Joy, Alex, and David. We appreciate your production capabilities. Um, and we thank you all for listening in and sharing your time with us. Uh, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thank you.